1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stammen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, biking out in the mountains, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication and grant proposals to receive research funding. I'm also working on on a new startup called SciWriter AI, uh, which is going to be the first artificial intelligence co-pilot tool for academic writing. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nico Fund, president at Oxford University Press USA office. Nico is the academic publisher of Oxford University Press and president of Oxford's US office. He began his career at Oxford back in 1987. I will reveal that that was the year of my birth. Uh, as an editorial assistant in law and social science before moving to nyu press in 1990 where he was an editor and then editor-in-chief before becoming director in 1996 he returned to oxford in 2000 where he is responsible for oversight of the press's research and reference publishing arm a past president of the association of university presses he serves or has served on various boards including those of the digital public library of america Eurasia Group Foundation, the Executive Council of the Professional and Scholarly Publishing Division of the American Publishers, and the literary magazine, The Common. Nico, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me. Brilliant. So let's get started here. And you have uh, quite the extensive experience when it comes to academic publishing, but I want to kind of take you back down memory lane for a minute here and ask you if you can remember that first time, um, The Sweet Young Love, when you actually realized wow this is something I enjoy doing and um, maybe you know could do this for a career
1: yeah it was unsurprisingly related to uh, a book it was one of the first books I worked on which was called Freedom Summer by a sociologist named Doug McAdam and he was writing about people who had participated in the Mississippi Freedom Summer voter registration drive in uh, 1964 1965 and he uh, was trying to address this myth that was uh, very much in the culture at the time, that all the 60s radicals had basically become, uh, you know, uh, were running nightclubs and gone into finance and had essentially betrayed their their younger ideals. So he went around and interviewed a lot of the, uh, the veterans of, of Freedom Summer, and found that uh, almost all of them were still very much active in uh, causes of social justice. Uh, many of them having led lives of of privation uh, in order to fulfill their their uh, what they saw as their their purpose. And uh, I thought the testimonies in that book were were really striking. Um, and it converged uh, at a time that we were publishing. Uh, the Schoenberg series of 19th century black women writers, which was uh, a series that uh, Henry Louis Gates had, uh, had pitched to the press. And we uh, reissued essentially an entire corpus of literature in the form of these 20 books that were written by black women. um, Many of them having to have white scholars attesting uh, in a forward to the fact that these women had in fact written these books um, uh, at the time. And um, so we, uh, reissued those. And I was I had the good fortune of being at Towson State University when we um, exhibited them for the first time. And I was really struck by the adulation and reverence with which uh, the debut of that series was greeted. And it just struck me that this was a really nice convergence of a form of benevolent commerce, of a purposeful commerce, uh, and uh, the kind of academic adjacent work that I uh, hoped to pursue without necessarily being in the Academy per se. So, uh, yeah. And that feeling has actually, has not only never, never, uh, faltered, but I would say that given the age we're currently in and, you know, this intersects somewhat with the subject we're going to talk about, uh, I think the role of these, of these presses the, that are, that are here to try to disseminate uh, proven tested vetted content is as important as ever before.
0: Yeah. So that is going to be the topic of our discussion today is, um, the value of content in an age of artificial intelligence and the age of LMs. I guess a, you know, kind of cynical approach would say, well, with the ability to create endless content, you know, almost at the click of a button um, a lot of garbage in garbage out and kind of what's the value of that. And I think that what's interesting to me and, and, you know, uh, I, uh, full disclosure, I just recently published an article in scholarly kitchen The Nico was really helpful. You were very helpful in, um, it in helped me kind of form my thoughts about it. But what's really kind of, been on my mind recently is well, if we're going to build out these large language models, right? And if generative AI is here to stay, well, then, you know, it's kind of this black box of where, what's the source of all these materials, right? And I think we, we've we gotten bits and pieces here and there about ChatGPT that, you know, it's a mix of some of the scholarly record, but you've also got, you know, some Quora answers and maybe some Reddit threads. And you've got a lot. It's a big salad and a big mix of different things. And I think that's part of the problematics that come out of that. And, you know, the question that I've been asking out loud and to others and to anyone who wants to listen is, well, what is, uh, you know, what's the potential and what's the possibility for a large language model or for generative AI that's actually based on the scientific corpus and scientific record? But so I want to kind of, that's just to set the stage. But in order to kind of delve into that topic, uh, I want to just start off by asking you kind of to go over for maybe those who are less familiar, a bit of a, you know, under the hood or behind the scenes of what exactly um, is a large language model, and how do they work? And then we can kind of take it from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've touched on one one aspect of this subject that I, I think is, if not unprecedented, certainly one of the more extreme features of of the way in which this has come onto the landscape as, as quickly as it has. Which is that I have rarely, I can, I, I'm hard pressed to think of something that um, is both so intriguing, so complicated, and so exhausting to try to keep track of. I mean, you mentioned the, the piece you wrote, Abi. Uh I was just thinking back to the people whom I've uh, drawn on to try to educate myself about this, whether it's Joe Esposito, your fellow chef at Scholarly Kitchen, or my colleagues, Casper Grathwall, Aaron O'Reilly, Sophie Jackson Wood, all these people. And I realize I've been engaged in this massive hoovering up of of every perspective I possibly can to try to get my brain around this subject. So as, as far as I can you know, understand it to reduce this to the most uh, basic, uh, and this this goes into the the anxiety some people have about you know using the term artificial intelligence. Uh, a lot of the people who work in the lexical part of Oxford are. It pains to highlight to me that, that you know that that is a deceptive term. Uh, large language models is really what we should be relying on, since essentially these are word prediction engines that are looking at the preceding words and based upon those words are are drawing conclusions about what the most likely next word is going to be. And because we are very susceptible to perceive intelligence where there is not intelligence, uh, we attribute an intelligence there that is merely a uh, a very complicated algorithm. So, but even that is changing because, of course, these are these are founded on our neural n- networks, and they they uh, learn with with shocking rapidity, um, and that's why there's I think such alarm in so many different quarters uh, around not just how quickly this is all happening before any form of legislation can catch up to it, but also for those of us who recollect the questioning of Mark Zuckerberg on, on Capitol Hill, uh, the fact that you know our our political class is not necessarily. Any better equipped to uh, to grapple with these issues than I think a lot of the people who are uh, talking heads about them.
0: Yeah, I I've been um trying to coin the term I don't know maybe unsuccessfully but in trying to conceptualize what uh the these LMs are as Wordle on steroids. Um, that's kind of the way that I like to think about them. Is it's like you know imagine if you have the power to kind of predict what the most likely combination of words is. You know you'd all, always be solving Wordle in one or two tries. Um, obviously that's kind of a maybe a little bit a little bit of jest and comical, but I do think it is important to give context is that the word that I think is most often forgotten is actually language, right? So when I think a lot of the mistakes that kind of come from, uh, you know, these large language models or or from people's use of them, maybe is a more exact way of saying it, is trying to understand them as information models or trying to understand them as alternatives, either for search, Google search, or for even for Wikipedia. Um, And I think that, actually we need to go back to the word language which is exactly what you said it's you know understanding the power in the linguistic sense less than maybe an informational sense uh, but i'm curious kind of in your in your role and in your seat as you know in 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 you know at, at oxford what are some of the major issues that your you know publishers or you know your staff are coming to you with about uh lms and what are some of the biggest issues that you've seen thus far
1: yeah, well, I think I mean again, this is is such a fast-moving target. But I think one of the things that um, I, one has to ask oneself at the at the very start is, uh, is, is this technology, uh, you know, sufficiently mature, ready enough for us to want to uh, participate in it? Uh, is it something that we think, uh, you know, with all the hallucinations that that occur, uh, and I think that's a really the tendency of uh, ChatGPT and others to make stuff up. I think, is is really indicative as to why this came onto the market as quickly as it did. Uh, I think that for most people in our world, you, you wouldn't put something out there that was as consistently wrong about basic, basic factual matters as it is. So it highlights, to me at least, the... Um, the fact that this was driven by commercial and capitalist uh, motivations—that there was a—that there was a, that there was a uh, you know a race to market, and that people wanted to to be the first out there, even though uh, the you know it's not quite ready for for prime time. Um, so that's I think uh, a worry in its own right. I think the fact that uh, so much of the content these days is now generated uh, that that is on the internet is generated automatically uh, means that. Uh, and and I think there's conflicting research about this already, whether or not um, these LLMs are getting more or less accurate. Uh, because the idea is, if you're if you're simply churning through masses of automatically generated information, then um, you know you're not necessarily going to get any better. It's you're basically having LLMs drawing an LLM generated uh, content or automatically generated content, and I think that that goes to one of the. Uh, the heart the heart of the issue for me which is that uh i like everybody else has been dazzled by the quality of the answers to questions the work that that um that llms can do but what has not you know what people talk about how it's boring how the prose is dull uh i think all of us uh you know consume information read or do research because we're looking for that thing that it does to our brain that is you know, that, that we can feel that is counterintuitive or it, it uh, teaches us something or we get an insight. You know, there's something that happens in your mind when you're exposed to something that you haven't thought about before, or that you that explain something to you, you haven't had before. And, um, that I think, you know, th- th- I have not seen that as yet at all. And I may just not be asking the right questions or uh, going to the right places, but I think that that, um, and again, that's not a retentive point. That's not a defending the old guard. That's not you know saying uh, human creativity will always out because that's not necessarily true. Uh, but I think for the time being, uh, it is a it is a tool that is very useful for a lot of uh, very interesting tasks, but uh, and and complicated tasks even. But um, uh, I have not
0: yet seen anything that rises uh, to, to that level of uh, of insight. Do you think as a kind of theoretical exercise not knowing what the results would be do you think that it is worth our time either you know as academics or scholarly publishing to try and see what an llm would look like based on the scholarly record do you think that, that could hold inherent value and if so kind of what 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 potential benefits could you see that having? Yeah,
1: I mean, very much so. You know, so I think that the move now uh, from LLM to SLM, this idea that you want to be drawing on small uh, language models that are that are tested and and proven, I think that's very promising, and I very much agree with that. I think that if you um, you know, ask ask a question of uh, a different data set, uh, one from the other. You're going to get you're going to get a very different set of answers. And if you ask, as we all know, the internet writ large a question, you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask a um, uh, you know a vetted uh, vetted database. So, um, but I think that you know there there's the theoretical questions that that uh, that we're dealing with, and then there are the very real pragmatic practical questions that publishers already have to deal with. So. Um, do we, are we willing to publish AI generated content? I suspect right now already, there are any number of academics using uh, various tools to improve their manuscripts, to fine tune translations, to maybe do the initial draft of the translation and then and then fine tune it based, you know, excuse me, on that draft. And, um, but there are, the question of what does that look like contractually? What does that look like in terms of the work that we do? Um, you know, ChatGPT, I think, uh, allows its users to make use of its content in pretty much any way it wants to, but it does stipulate, it does request that you um, that you actually specify that a content is AI generated. So, I think, uh, and I think also, ChatGPT, if I'm not mistaken, enables you to restrict your data sets, right? Like that's something that I think uh, is not as widely known as it should be. That you can uh, refine the the answers, the source. Uh, of the answers you're being provided, and I think that whether to your question we end up with um, large menu, and you can widen or shrink the the data that is being drawn from, um, uh, or you just have different sites for different purposes. In the same way, right now, you know, Wikipedia serves a very different purpose than, um, let's say, the OED. If I want to learn about the uh, the origin of a word the etymological origin of a word i go to the oed if i want to learn about the origin of a band i go to wikipedia um so i think that that that
0: is still very much up in the air i think yeah these are you know it's it is interesting to think about from kind of the researcher perspective i i know that you know when i think about these issues because i've spent the last 10 years kind of helping uh researchers from english is not their native language um publish i know they're up against like really it's an uphill battle each and every time i um, try to get their research published regardless of you know the quality of the research they're doing or you know the the, the level of uh, that they're working at and so my you know kind of knee-jerk reaction is like oh this is a great way that they can really be empowered um to, to help them but we've done a real deep dive into this and, and we find that it's it's an interesting it's sort of an interesting two sides of the same coin where one one side is, it really, like you said before, has potential, especially with language, to do really great work and to really refine in a way which I do think there's sparks of human creativity. I'm not talking about you know kind of um, you know the 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 full you know kind of critical thinking from scratch, but you know in terms of at least rephrasing in a way which can be more understandable, and that's really powerful. On the other end, at the same time, I mean when when I've been we've been playing around this with this internally in our with our staff, so. They'll come back to me and say today was great. The next day it was awful. Then I had a paragraph that was entirely missing. Recently, someone told me that there was an entirely new paragraph with substance that content that wasn't like at all related to the original text that was thrown in. So I think it's maybe the lack of predictability and consistency, and the and and what's really critical for researchers to know is with I don't know it sounds cliche, but with great power comes a big responsibility to check <laughs> what. What work you know? What's actually being done? So, in a certain ironic way, it can do better work, but it actually needs to be checked a lot more carefully than if you are doing you know iterations with a a fellow colleague or whatnot. So, yeah, I think they're all over the
1: Well, I mean, I, I think it's it, it. I mean, for me, I, the, the the theoretical questions and the larger abstract questions are are in many ways more interesting for the purposes of a conversation like this than the more uh, technical and pragmatic ones. But I think that. There are so many cognitive biases that we bring to this. I just got back from San Francisco, where, of course, there are all these uh, um, driverless cars whizzing around. And uh, my initial reaction was that I found it quite creepy um, to see these cars that have all these, you know, spinning things on top and there's nobody inside the car. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm also conscious of the fact that if you were to introduce a transportation technology, let's say right now, that enabled me to, you know, um, uh, teleport overnight to another continent and that... Worked, uh, you know, almost all the time. But that every day, uh, ten to twenty people didn't materialize where they were supposed to be; they just vanished. Um, the 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 skepticism that that technology would be greeted with would be uh, incommensurate with the fact that sixty to eighty Americans die every day in cars. Um, so there are these things that we uh, when you know, that are that are irrational from the standpoint of risk uh, that are just the, the nature of us. You know, the nature of how we approach new technologies that we, that we, um, you know, depending on whether we are in favor or, or not, um, we're either technophilic or technophobic. And I think that a lot of the reaction to LLMs right now falls very much into those two camps. Right.
0: Yeah. And it, it, it also, it makes me think about, well, what is our level of tolerance for error? And is it the same? So it's clearly not the same between, you know, our fellow humans and and technology. We have a higher standard for technology, but I think what's interesting to me is thinking about, well, okay, if that's the case, well, maybe we have a different level of tolerance for error. If we're talking about, you know, kind of more a social um, post, you know, that as a comedic element than we do for, I don't know, surgical instructions, right? Meaning it's part of the question here is, is not, just is it accurate? But what are the use cases, and what level of tolerance do we have for those? So, like you said, with cars, it's like almost zero, right? It's I mean, we agree. You know, I think there was. I remember seeing a news story about one accident, you know, um that a uh, in a in a driverless car. People were like, "Oh, that's it. We're done." You know, back to back to humans. And it's like, well, actually, the exception to the rule should show us how how incredible it has been till now. um And I think maybe that's kind of where the questions become each each. Maybe industry needs to think for themselves about, you know, kind of, well, what is our tolerance for error A? And then B is, what is our current error rate, right? Um, you know, with peer, with human peer review or with, you know, maybe potentially, um, you know, uh, obviously we're all trying to, you know, avoid the paper mill, paper mill problems and things like that. So let's not be naive and assume that like right now everything's 100 and so we expect AI to be 100, but actually be able to compare apples to apples, which is not an easy thing to do because we don't necessarily know our own. Industry exactly how accurate our content is.
1: Yeah, I think that's key. I think also what's key is the agency or the origin of the error. Right, that's the thing that everybody finds creepy about uh, about a lot of LLMs. I you know uh, have on three consecutive days a, a couple of months ago, I asked ChatGPT four to uh, write a two hundred word biography of me, and it made up a different demonstrably false fact every time about a degree I had, an institution I attended, uh, an association that I was a member of. Uh, and I think that's the thing, you know, it all it goes back to that Kevin Roos piece in the New York Times about um, about I forget which LLM it was basically late at night texting back and forth and basically trying to get him trying to break up his marriage. <laughs> you know uh, that the thing is, he can know intellectually that this thing is just responding to two people uh, at a certain time of day, getting to know each other via this medium and. Um, the conclusion that it draws is, uh, you know, I should be trying to insinuate myself sexually into this person's life or romantically. Um, and that's where we're, we're publishing a book uh, in a little while called uh, The AI Mirror. And one of the things that uh, the author highlights, which I think is very interesting, is, um, uh, you know, we keep talking about human parameters and human uh, ethics uh, as being the, the, the litmus test, the, the bar that we should set. And her argument is we've got to set that bar much higher. Um, and uh, I think that's that's an interesting thought, that, that we shouldn't be, you know, just using ourselves as the, as the barometer, since we don't really do all that well. Um, but I think that agency of error question, that's a really hard thing to get around, right? It's that, and that's where the example of the, the teleportation machine holds up, because you don't know where those people who disappeared are. If somebody dies in a car crash, you know that. Um, and, of course, this is if, these aren't questions that are new. We published a whole book called Robot Ethics which basically takes you know, all these philosophical conundra, the fat man on the bridge, the trolley problem, and, uh, and translates them to different forms of technology. You know, if if you're driving down the street and you're driving the car and you see a baby carriage suddenly uh, in front of you, like rolling in front of you, you draw as a human being a different conclusion if you see a screaming, uh, frantic parent versus two uh, you know, teenage boys sort of looking mischievous, right? And you draw a conclusion there, that would make you uh, act one way or the other, especially if that action imperils somebody else because there is uh, an old uh, elderly couple walking on the other side of the street and you have to mow over to avoid that baby carriage, right? Now, when human beings are the agents of those decisions, even if they made the wrong decisions, we, we are able to process that. But if you don't know what the origin of the decision is, um, it's unsettling. And I think that that's, that's where we are with, with a lot of the inaccuracies. And I mean, that Kevin Roos piece was you know, terrifically entertaining along those lines because it had the added
0: element of being funny and and creepy. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's um, you know, the, I think the source, obviously that's a big, that's a big questionnaire. And I think more than, you know, maybe even more than the hallucinations, which I think if we're taught, educated properly, we can understand, you know, let's not take this, everything that we get with a you know, take everything that you get with a grain of salt, but understanding kind of, well, okay. What is this? What is the salad like? What's what are the different components that are that make it up? There was actually a great piece in the Washington Post a few months back where they actually tried to deconstruct GPT and figure out what its sources were. And I remember being surprised at like how big of a mix it really was, and to the point where it's almost like, you know, well, this is almost not appropriate for any use case. Meaning, it's excellent as maybe as a general model that it's taking from the entire internet. But most of us in our day to day work have actually much more specific, like you said, the S. You know the, the SLMs, the small, small language models, maybe do a better job to to, well, to, to that. Nice. What's interesting
1: about that is how you know, again, I just always think about these subjects in terms of the different levels, where it's like fun to have a cocktail conversation about it in the abstract, and then there's a question about responsibilities that different institutions have, and then there is the self interest of both the individual and the institution. I think that. Uh, I, I forget now which piece it was. Maybe it was a piece about Wikipedia and ChatGPT or, or LLMs in the in the Sunday Times magazine the other day. But it was it talked about this site that that uh, coders go to when they've written a bit of code that they think could be transferable and useful, and they deposit it there. And ChatGPT scrapes that site, and as a result, people are actually now just asking questions of ChatGPT. But the number of contributions that are now being made to that site are diminishing. So you have a problem where the source site is actually becoming less valuable by virtue of the, uh, accretive aggregated value of the LLM and how you, I don't, I mean, that's, that's that, you know, that's, a, that's a version of the, the way in which reference publishers have addressed, uh, Wikipedia by rather than, I think, sensible reference publishers rather than by vilifying what is one of the most extraordinary things that's happened, I think, in our lifetimes in this, you know, voluntary gratis creation of this magnificent resource, um, we've tried to think how can we actually take our vetted content and make that something that is we could be either draws from or links to right that's the that is i think the obvious uh, approach um so but but i think that d- does this pose existential challenges to certain businesses yeah absolutely i think the that you know the very the flip side of what i was saying about you know originality and creativity is digesting and distilling if your business model is based upon digesting and distilling, uh, I think you really have to have have real concerns. And I think there are certain publishers, Oxford included, where there are certain kinds of publishing that we do that are very much along those lines, right? That take a corpus of knowledge and try to refine it and and kind of uh, distill it down to being a consumable uh, chunk. And um, that I think is uh, likely to be affected by this uh, technology pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm curious, I mean, you know, this is it's I think it's very early days, but I am curious to hear from you about, you know, kind of circling back to my original thesis, which is that, well, what would a world look like whereby we could build LMs based on um, you know, scientific literature? And the more I think about it, the more I realize that even the big AI companies, like they have a vested interest in getting the best content possible. Even if they're not going to use that for their general models, I'd have to imagine that if they wanna kind of, you know, um, they want people to build off their platforms, which is, I think, what, you know, Nvidia and OpenAI and, and Anthropic are, you know, want to happen. Um, you know, the real, I think the uh, the va- most valuable use cases are going to be the ones that are based off the, you know, actual, accurate, um, you know, and, and, and verified information. And even more so, I guess that there is an argument that's been put forth that, you know, the most valuable information may actually be the information that's private, right? It can't be scraped um by these by these llms on their own but actually you know there's agreements that need to be made i think there was recently an agreement made between open ai and um, ap um and i saw also in in the publishing uh uh you know context uh that uh, Clarivate um uh basically announced an agreement that they're going to be partnering with ai21 labs they were very vague about what exactly they were going to be doing and how that would look but i'm curious if you know from what you're allowed to say, and you know, from from your seat, if you've seen any any kind of meeting of the minds between maybe some of these um, LLMs or their you know the companies behind them and some of the major academic publishers, and do you think those are going to be meetings that are kind of or or conversations that are going to be taking place? Yeah, I
1: think those conversations absolutely have to take place, uh, and I think they they you know in some cases already are. Uh, I think there's also uh, the. Sensitivity around um, the framing of those conversations. Uh, I think that um, you know, uh, so that that's that's a big question. I, you know, your your point about do we uh, do we need to rely on this this vetted content? I think that that is um, you know incontrovertibly the answer to that is yes. And I'm reminded years ago I was at a meeting of uh, a Library Consortium Soche, I think it's called in uh, in Ohio of uh, uh, I think about a hundred or so. Uh, small liberal arts colleges in Ohio. And uh, one of the questions that came up, I was one of the few publishers in the room, and it was right during the the peak of uh, all the, you know, sort of information about author services, publishing, and the fact that, you know, we've gone in the U.S., we had gone in the U.S. from a country that was publishing in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million ISBNs, so sort of separate books a year, to publishing over three million in a very short period of time. And the librarians were saying, you know, what do we, what do, we do with all this? How on earth can we possibly... And my... Suggestion was ignore it, ignore it. Most of this is, you know, family memoirs. Most of this is is content that is not is not the kind of content you want to be uh, providing to your academic community. They don't they don't need it. They don't want it. They're you know it's fan fiction. It's romance novels, and that's not to in any way disparage that content. It's just not the right content for that community. And I think there is there is what you know uh, it's a garbage in garbage out point, right? It seems to me entirely self-evident that if you are trying to index something and you have a lot of uh, misinformation or corrupt data, that what comes out of it is going to be wrong. So I think this refining process, I think we're going to be in that stage now going forward. And and is that going to be a turf battle? Um, It seems to be almost unavoidably so. Um, So yeah. And and in terms of, I mean, obviously I'm not free to speak uh, about Oxford's position and all this, but I think you have... You have people, uh, whether they are entities, whether they are you know publishers, uh, commercial organizations, or individuals who have uh, good, viable content that is their intellectual property. And uh, this is where I think that uh, not-for-profit university press-type organizations have a really important role to play, because I think the suspicion that is cast by um uh by many at uh for-profit entities as wanting to colonize every new technology Uh, that's not entirely unfounded i mean that is that is really if you look at for instance uh the history of open access in certain ways uh capitalist forces you know they do what capitalist forces do is they look for market opportunities and look for ways in which to position their 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 organizations uh in that universe in a way that is advantageous to them and so I think that that's very much where we are right now, and I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how this plays out over the course of the next uh, next few years, because it's so much about this is indeterminate. You know, the argument about whether something, uh, you know, the use, the, the, the term transformative use, uh, I think is going to be one that we're all going to become very familiar with if we aren't already when it comes to uh, what what scraping a site actually uh, is and does and means. So, um, but yeah. I'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. 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 I, I think I've, I've done, I've learned a lot more about um, copyright law for the last few weeks in investigating this topic than I ever thought I, I, I would, but it's actually, it's quite fascinating because a lot of this basically comes down to the question of, you know, what as a society, what are, or, you know, kind of as legal precedent, um, you know, what is the meaning of, of taking content, you know, I think we're, we're all kind of clear on the, the what I like to call the Drake case, which is kind of, you know, you take Drake's music, you mix it up, and then you create a new Drake song, right? That, that, that's kind of like, I think everyone has this sort of intuitive feeling of like, no, we're, you know, we like Drake should be upset about that. Um, whereas I think when it's a lot more generic in general and you can't trace back, and I think that's very intentional, by the way, that, that, that OpenAI doesn't provide the source of their information, um, but we can't trace it back. It's almost kind of like, well, go prove, go prove that this was... You know, that you had one infinitesimal, um, you know, percentage point in this and, and, and what the value and, you know, go try and put a number on that. Um, That's where I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I also think like, it makes me wonder also, even if that could be done, well then, you know, authors, obviously, you know, depending on the exact kind of um, agreement they come to with the publisher, um, they're signing over their license in return for the services rendered by the publisher um, but it also makes me wonder whether authors are going to try to, you know, um, rethink their ownership over their content, if it's going to be then repurposed for AI, you know, as well. And, and, you know, I think we, I've, I've definitely seen for those who aren't familiar and you know, I've seen a trend of kind of authors asking themselves hard questions about where they want to publish and how they want to publish. And, and I think publishers themselves understanding that, you know, authors need to be involved in this, in this conversation. So, yeah, I think as, as you said, the more we we dive in at the the more kind of complicated and, and complex it gets. I think think you saw a really good
1: point uh, and a really important point, which is around this question of aggregated content, right? Is whether individual uh, authors will be able to negotiate this for themselves. And in my experience over, you know, three and a half decades, most authors, uh, you know, take open access. For instance, I spent much of the last five years, uh, trying to think of ways in which to explain open access, uh, in a, in a, uh, neither a, uh, jingoistic nor pejorative way to academics. Um, and to do it in a way that actually they can understand. Um, I mean, that, that sounds I don't mean that sounds patronizing, not to understand, but the way can, they can apply it to how they're writing their, their works. And, uh, it's reminded me all the way back to the days of, um, early days of print on demand, where, uh, you know, we, we had this new technology that was genuinely transformative for us as publishers because we weren't held captive by the economies of scale. And we could simply, uh, print a book, you know, one at a time. And, uh, I remember trying to figure out a good metaphor to explain this. Um, and it took me a while to land on one until finally I was, it was about wine and the bottling mechanism for wine, which is basically how you print a book. Nobody cares how you print a book, right? They, what they care is that what it looks like when they hold it in their hand. And I think that, um, uh, you know, trying to unpack this one, you know, you as you were talking, I was reminded of a of a phenomenon we experience as academic publishers not infrequently, where we publish a quite academic book, and then a journalist uh, writes a book on a very similar topic, but writes it in a very journalistic way. And again, I'm not I'm not being pejorative here; I'm just being entirely factual. And and does what's known as sourcing through our book, basically cites the primary sources that our author did, and the author is infuriated. Because the author feels like they're the one who is in the archives, they're the one who's done all this, and the sources match very closely their own. But they're accurate, and you don't have ownership to archives, and you don't need to be doing that research yourself. And there is no theft of intellectual property. There might be an ethical question. Um, but so to go to your point about how do you attribute any of this when you can't even figure out why uh, it, things are being answered the way they are, and much less attach a compensation model to it. I think that's very, very challenging. But at the same time, I think a fragmentation of this valuable content will probably not do anybody any good. You want to ideally consolidate that as much as possible. And, you know, for entirely understandable self-interested reasons, I'm in favor of that consolidation happening at not-for-profit university presses, because that's the world I happen to occupy.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, without getting into too much of a deep dive i'm going to recommend and, and they're not a sponsor so there's no bias here but there's a there's a podcast called more perfect um and they it's about uh, the u.s uh, supreme court and i recently listened to an episode about andy warhol um and basically he to make a long story short he basically took a photo of a prince which was copyright and he then painted it um and kind of added some unique elements, and the original photographer sued him uh, for copyright violation, and and he, you know, and and you get you you mentioned this point about transformative use, and then you know the question becomes, well, is what he did transformative or not? Um, and I think like that's kind of an open-ended question, and even the concept of transformative to begin with is like a very they, they actually interviewed the, um, the I think it was a it was either an academic who, who came up with this term. He's like, yeah, I just meant this to be kind of like a first first stab in the dark about trying to come up with a way of defining fair use. Um, and really it's, it's, if you not, it, it didn't, I guess a, a ball or it's not clear enough what this means. So, so it's an interesting, it's a really interesting episode. And I think it's a good, maybe a good kind of framing for thinking about this, you know, this topic. Yeah.
1: Would well, you remember the whole, uh, the whole controversy about whether or not you could, uh, trademark, um, the color of the bottom of a shoe it was about Le Boutin's the, uh, the designer shoe, and they're always the bottom is always red. And there was a there was a, a, a court case about this, and we published a book which was about the different um, ways in which different industries deal with imitation. So you look at, for instance, the restaurant industry, and uh, you know, imitation runs rampant, right? You look at we were talking earlier about like stand up comedy before we got on, and that's the the, the most egregious offense you can possibly commit in the world of stand up comedy is stealing somebody else's joke, right? But if some chef does your miso-covered black cod? Everybody does your miso-covered black cod. That's that's just an assumed act. So this this varies so different so much from industry to industry, and um, each each usage case, I think, is you know even if they're quite similar, they're, they're different in in uh, in certain ways. So it's yeah, it's I mean, this is why intellectual property is such a uh, febrile area.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess imitation is the best form of flared, uh, flattery is, is a lovely, lovely to know, but it's not always, not always nice when you're the, when you're the author. Um, I was, I've got a lot, a lot more questions, but I, I'm cognizant of time. So let's just finish off with, with one, you know, kind of, um, I guess more pragmatic and practical question, which is that if you, you know, if you were to be kind of in a chat with, with a publisher, um, with other publishers and they would ask you kind of, you know, what, what, what can we do to, to, you know, because it's such a big topic and because it's changing so quickly, either prepare ourselves or to kind of, you know, see uh, what it is that, you know, how to prepare themselves as an institution for for AI. What are kind of like, you know, a few of the points that you would you would say to that? Well, I think thinking about way, the
1: ways in which this can be beneficially used, I think is, is the crucial thing. And I think that what we still aren't entirely clear on is whether if a, if a, a piece of content is in, ingested by an LLM, what exactly does that mean in, you know, in every sense of the word? Uh, and, uh, I would be very surprised if we didn't already have, as I said earlier, authors who who aren't thinking about these issues, because again, they're thinking about their, their book, they're thinking about their subject. Uh, they don't think about these issues, nor should they necessarily, uh, but, um, who are already doing things that where they're just loading their manuscripts into, uh, uh, you know, um, I mean, take for instance, uh, keywords and abstracts. I don't think anybody or indexes. Nobody nobody thinks themselves, I can't wait to do the keywords and abstracts or the index for my books. That's, you know, uh, so if there's a way in which to do that, that in a shorthand way, I think that the, the primary fork in the road here, and I made the exact, uh, I made this mistake earlier in, uh, in response to one of your questions, is to immediately go to content creation, right? Everybody does because that's sexy and that's interesting. And the fact is, I think there are an enormous number of ways in which technology like this can be brought to to fruitful use uh whether it's uh, i mean we talked about translation but all the, the whole variety of sort of non-content creation related tasks i think is uh know yeah, there are any number of them you could uh and again that point about not is it perfect but is it better and faster than the alternatives you've been relying on all along so you know marketing copy customer service chat bots proofreading certainly my god proofreading uh you know, the kind of metadata creation around keywords and abstracts, uh, uh, also usage and sales analysis. I think you could, you could, you know, save yourself a lot of time and effort there. Uh, plagiarism detection, uh, would be another one. So I think there are a lot of things that we, we can do. I think there is anxiety around it. Um, because it's such a massive subject and everybody is still really trying to get their brain around the, the, the parameters of it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a ton to do. I'm, I'm, reminded of, uh, remember when David Byrne started playing around with PowerPoint and created this like, uh, art display basically based on PowerPoint. And of course, bore no resemblance to PowerPoint, but it, it was, uh, you know, one of the more interesting PowerPoint presentations that I've ever seen, but, um, but yeah, I think, so I think there are stages to this, right? Right now we're in the mistrust. What is the integrity of the information stage? Uh, look look at Wikipedia. We were having very similar conversations uh uh when Wikipedia first came about. And um, you know, and Wikipedia is now pretty established, right? It's it's not as controversial as it was. It's not this, you know, this thing that we endlessly debate. We understand it. We understand what its limitations are, we understand what its massive benefits are, and um and I think that will uh it, it's not a it's not a perfect example though, because Wikipedia is actually very uh easy to understand this this is it goes off in so many different directions that uh, uh and nobody really uh i mean i would say it's one of these subjects that the only uh positions i tend to really mistrust are the ones where people absolutely have staked out a position they know they're right
0: because i think it's impossible to be uh that prescient uh in this early on yeah for sure um i will I'll, I'll just end off by saying that if anyone wants if if anyone's kind of curious um to learn more and you know, kind of about AI specifically in a research context. First of all, I would highly recommend following um, Professor Ethan Mollick from uh, Penn. Uh, he's got some really excellent um, uh, materials online uh, about how you know how he's approaching teaching this coming semester um, with AI, how he's approaching uh, research writing and 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 literature reviews. Um, and then, in addition, for anyone who's interested, um, I'm actually currently running a course in the middle of the course called AI Tool Up Tuesdays, um, which is actually featuring uh, over 20 of uh, AI tools that are specific for research. And the reason that I'm excited about these tools is because they actually have taken into account a lot of the problematics that come along with the generative models. Um, They actually are resolved in some of these AI-specific or research-specific tools that are built. And the founders and the entrepreneurs are generally researchers themselves who have kind of come to solve a really difficult, um, issue. So, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, supercharging your literature review or it's, you know, uh, help with research writing. Um, these are really, really cool, um, people and then cool tools that they're building out. So, um, I'll drop that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Nico, if, um, I don't know if you're active on any kind of, you know, social platforms, if you have any, you know, writing anywhere, if anyone does want to kind of follow up, read more either about Oxford or yourself, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you
1: know what? Just email me. Uh, by virtue of my position, I tend to keep a fairly really low profile on social media. So uh, uh And I'm always happy to hear from folks. So please don't hesitate. Fantastic.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time today. I know I learned a lot. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to our future conversations.
1: Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much, Albie.